Well, we come back to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, as we continue on. And, uh, you know, a couple, uh, a quick story. I uh, got a chance to speak with Averill today, so I'm not ready to disown my son anymore. No, just kidding. Um, however, for those of you fishermen um, that taught your kids how to fish and how to clean fish, good job. For those of you that haven't, go grab one of these guys that has a boat, take them out, catch some fish, and make them clean them. I did that with my boys. Peter standing there just ready to hurl the whole time, yucking it up, just, and, and Averill, you know, made him clean those fish. Well, he is in Israel. They caught about 20 pretty good size St. Peter's fish, which are basically a perch, and he's got all these other boys and girls with him. Not one of them knew how to clean fish, so Averill ended up cleaning all the fish and filleting them out so that they could cook them tonight. I was like, way to go. But I'm sure there was a little bit of gurgling going on with him, too, because he didn't do great the first time. But just thankful for that. He's had a blessed opportunity. He thanks you all for your prayer. He's now had the opportunity to swim in all of the four seas, the, what they call the dead, the red, and the med, um, Mediterranean, and also the Sea of Galilee they just have gotten to this week. So he was uh, up at Caesarea Philippi, which was without a doubt, the place that left the greatest impact on me, where Peter makes his great confession in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And to stand there in that place where the Jordan River pours out from that cliff at its mouth, and, and to, to see and to consider all that happened there and Christ following up. You, you are Peter, and upon this rock, as he stood at a, at a, as a rock, at a rock, bigger than this church, bigger than that wall, about three times that wide and, and twice as high. And it's just so breathtaking. So I'm so thankful, so thankful for your prayers. Well, I also want to answer your homework. We actually will get to that text a little further, but I thought we would dive right in. It's kind of a trick question. No tomatoes. Rusty, did you get all those tomatoes beforehand? Um, so I want to take you first off, there's two ways, really, you could have gotten to it. The first would have been through verse 12, um, which we'll get to next week as far as our text. But Ezekiel 34, 12, where it says, As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. If we look at one of those footnotes under the, the B subnote where it says care for my sheep, we have a cross-reference of Isaiah 40.11. That's not the text, but if you go to Isaiah 40.11, and I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles, just so you can see Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 11. We get to Isaiah 40.11, and when we look at a cross-reference, one of the most important things for us to do is look at the context so we guard ourselves from proof texting. Remember the beginning of last week's message when we talked about that element of proof texting, how a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. That is a text out of the Bible without the context around it 
is a pretext or a presumption for a proof text, for taking something out of context. So look at verse 9 with me. Let's read the whole context of Isaiah 40:11. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold the Lord Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Now, if we were to look up at verse 9, at the cross reference there, where it talks about here is your God, there is a cross-reference to Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 9. That's where we're going to ultimately go. Isaiah 25, 9, actually 6 through 11 is our content, or 6 through 12 is our answer. Let's look at another way to find it. Turn back first with me to Ezekiel 34 and verse 13. Ezekiel, there was two ways for you to get here. Ezekiel 34, 13, where it says, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. And we look again under the B footnote that talks about the streams and the inhabited places and we see Isaiah 30 and verse 25. If we went to Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 25, and if you would please turn to that text with me, Isaiah 30 and verse 25, and we again look at the context so we get the whole picture. Isaiah 30, beginning in verse 23, it says, Then he will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground, and bread from yield of the ground, and it will be rich and plenteous. And on that day your livestock will graze in roomy pastures. Also the oxen and donkeys will work the ground and eat salted fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain and on every high hill there will be streams running with water on the day of great slaughter when the towers fall. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days. On the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. And as we look at this context and even back into verse 19 of that same text in verse 30, it says, O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Our context is an eschatological end times reference. And if we looked again in verse 19 at that B reference that speaks about how they will weep no longer, we again see Isaiah 25, 8. So now turn to Isaiah 25 and we'll see the parallel that I was talking about, that I was encouraging you to dig. The point of this is that we have to sometimes follow these cross-references beyond the first place that we turn to and understand that, first off, it's showing us an eschatological time frame and it's showing us a parallel of several components that are happening there. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 25. 
the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. There, if you look at your footnote in verse 6 and that number 3, you'll see that that is also translated as fat. There is our parallel, which we spoke about last week. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all the people, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab will be trodden down in his place as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands, the unassailable fortification of your walls he will bring down lay low and cast to the ground even to the dust when we start to see these promises that are coming to bear in Ezekiel 34 this is the whole scope of that context is it is an end times proclamation of God removing the veil from all nations of restoring his nation uniquely and of providing a banquet a banquet of wine that is aged wine and choice pieces with marrow which may not seem all that choice to us because that's not right in our regular diet but this is indeed the finest of banquets this is the the highest end of buffets if this is the the grand hotel on the most beautiful and lavish spread they could put out it would be nothing compared to this i often say when i think of this this is no you know one dollar hot dog at 7-eleven or all you can eat this is the high end that God is preparing for all of us. And so what we're going to see and what I wanted you to find in this as you dug through some of these other texts is to recognize where we're about to launch into in Ezekiel as we move into the next section. Because really we're now talking in chapter 34 about the shepherds of Israel. We know that we're in this first formal night vision that Ezekiel has brought forward. And he's still, he is hammering on the shepherds of Israel. And we talked about last week how vitally important this text is for the New Testament elders. That I believe this is the text that is more likely without... Excluding the major prophetic texts of Isaiah 7.14 and Isaiah 9.6 and, and uh, Isaiah 6. These, this text particularly is probably preached more often in solid evangel- evangelical churches because it so clearly references elders. It speaks about shepherds, but the same proclamations re- ex- are expressed for elders and primarily for the sinning elders many people struggle as they come out of different churches into elder churches and they say how can we trust men we know what's in men 
You know, and we've talked about last week, and you can go back and look at that text on 1 Timothy 5.19 about what we do if we find an elder in sin. But here we have something much, much more because what if we don't find out? What will happen? Well, here is where we find the answer in this text. And we find that we can trust men because we are not trusting men, but we are trusting the God who has placed them in those positions of authority. We titled our message, The Feeding of Judgment, part two, if you will, as we come back, and judgment upon the shepherds of Israel, four times shepherds referenced in verse two. And the importance of the word woe in verse two can't be overstated, that this is not a minor, oh, you know, woe, no big deal. No, this is, when the Lord says woe, this is the most significant judgment. And it means we have to stop and pay attention. And it's exactly what we see. Our first point in verses 1 to 3 was this question the Lord asked of the shepherds, are you not pasturing? Are you not pasturing? The word feeding there actually used three times in verses 2 and 3 is actually the word pasturing, taking them out to pasture not just feeding but also clothing as verse 3 says it is provision for these animals as we talked about this is not physical feeding the Lord is not rebuking the shepherds because they didn't give them food or physical clothes but because they took advantage of them that spiritually they were feeding off of them they, they were not bringing them the food that they needed, not pasturing them, but instead they were taking from them. They were taking their food. They were receiving and not providing for the flock. So this was the question, are you not pasturing? And our second point in verse 4 was our second question, are you not preserving? Verse 4 has six rebukes. Five of them rebukes for errors of omission, and then the last one for an error of commission. Look at verse 4 with me. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the, the, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. Unconscionable. That these who are called by God to lead would deal in such a way with them. These are horrific illustrations of not caring, of not preserving. So we had our first two points. Are you not pasturing? Are you not preserving? And then in verses 5 and 6, we get to our third point. Are you not pursuing? Are you not pursuing? Each of the two previous points builds to this. Grammatically, this is a very prominent point, and each element of this verse centers around a common denominator, and it is being scattered or not pursuing. Look at verse 5 with me. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they, be they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. The Hebrew word for shepherd has been used seven times prior to this verse, and additionally we see many repeated elements. But what we find in these verses is that there are three pairs 
in verses 5 to 6. And each one focuses on being scattered. In fact, that word scattered uh, functions like bookends, like an echo of maximum disdain. Scattered. Scattered. You have, you have scattered my flock. God is indignant over what they have done. We see the, the, the element of that bookends in verse 5. The first verb, they were scattered, and then the last verb at the end of verse 5, were scattered. It's repeating, showing us this huge emphasis as if to say, how could you do this? In verse 5, they've become food for prey. It says they were scattered for lack of a shepherd and became food for every beast of the field. There was no one taking care of them. They were sent out into the field as sheep to a slaughter. You know, if there is a band of wolves around sheep, they will destroy an entire sheepfold in a matter of moments. Wolves go through, and, and many of us understand the, the metaphor because they're spoken of so often in Scripture, but many don't understand the real horror of how wolves devour animals. They don't go through and they don't huddle around one animal and kill it and eat it, as would, for instance, a, a cougar or a group of lions. Wolves go through and they hamstring different members of the flock as they run through, so they rip through the sheep, scattering them, hamstringing them as they go, and then they turn at the other side and they come back, and any that are still standing, they hamstring again. And they destroy the entire herd by tearing out one or two legs to where they cannot stand, sheep cannot get up once they're knocked over, and they can, in a matter of moments, destroy a herd. This is the metaphor, this is the picture that we're seeing for shepherds who don't care and feed for the flock. They're destroyed in no time. And when we look at the world around us, are we surprised? Oh, you know, your best life now. That's really what you need. Y'all, y'all need your best life now. Yeah, you, you, need to, you need to be giving more money. You need to come to my church because I'm going to wear a white suit and call you up front and slap you on the forehead and say, heal! Y'all going to be healed. And then... You're going to want more money? Well, the Lord wants to give you more money. And the only reason he's not giving it to you now is because you're not giving enough to the church. So if you give a little more, the Lord is going to provide for you. And if you'll just send it in here to this address on our TV, the Lord will bless you beyond what you can imagine. And our world is being brought down by these charlatans. It's incredible, the inroads that they are making. It's every bit as dangerous today as ever. They're scattered. Not literal food that they don't have, but it is the spiritual food. It is that they would embrace idolatry, that they would embrace the religions around them. You know, what's the problem if you go ahead and, you know, worship one of those little gold statues that our folks saw when they went to China? You know, cute little guy with a little belly hanging out there. What's wrong with that? Rub that little belly. Everything's wrong with that. But so many don't know that because their shepherds are not teaching them. Their elders are not bringing their truth. Beloved, this is identical to our day and age. 
Then in verse 6, the second pair at the beginning of verse 6 focuses on wandering. Look at it. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. There's our pair. On the mountains and every high hill. High hill is brought forward because that is the place where they would offer incense. That's where they would burn incense to their gods. These were religious places of worship. This didn't, didn't just mean hills that were higher than others. These are hills that were specifically identified for the purpose of idolatry. We see that term high hill throughout the scripture. They're wandering because they're scattered. And the first pair results in the second pair because of the fact that they became food for every beast and they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. Because of that, they wandered. What happens when we don't have direction? We wander. What's the song say? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's us. That's exactly who we are. Even, even in a good church, we're that way, are we not? Those that are not, they're just, they're wandering aimlessly and they're asking questions and the pastor's saying, oh, you're okay, don't worry about that. You know, Pastor, I'm worried because I, I seem to be finding myself in a place where I, I'm just, I keep having this desire to spend and spend and spend. Oh, it's all right. You're, you know, your husband makes a lot of money. You're all good. No. We need to be able to understand why this is happening. Because they are wandering through the mountains. Because they are wandering to the places of idolatry. The third pair at the end of verse 6 says, My flock was scattered, third time now, was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. The Lord often in his rebukes about the wickedness of a nation says, I looked for one righteous, and there was none. There is none that would search. There's none that would seek for the Lord's precious flock. We're introduced to the shepherd's imminent responsibility there at the end of verse 6. And this is the key term in the last half of the section. It's the Hebrew word meaning to seek out the missing sheep, to go after them. And yet the shepherds of Israel have failed. It's not an easy thing as an elder to go after sheep that are wandering away. Because although we are sheep, we have a much clearer mind about what we're doing. But this is our call. That even when they wander away, we must follow, we must call, we must seek to bring them back. Oftentimes to our own humiliation, oftentimes to our own rebuke from them, and I've received much from many in this area. But that does not change my responsibility, nor any of our elders. We are those, when we see those that have wandered from our flock, even when it appears they are gone, we must yet pursue. Because that's what we're called to. The, the term to seek here is so important. We, we see that they were doing and what they were illustrated as we see by the good shepherd as, as what they were supposed to do in matthew chapter 9 and verse 36 
we see the Lord speaking about how they should have responded, and yet, unfortunately, they were not. Matthew 9 and verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Have you ever felt distressed? Have you ever felt dispirited? Have you ever felt like you didn't know where to go or what was next? I think we all have. And yet, here is why the Lord came. He came and He saw them in that condition as sheep without a shepherd. In, Matthew, or in Mark 6, 3, we see Him repeat the same thing in a different context. Because the Lord continued to recognize that as people, we are often as sheep without a shepherd until we know the true shepherd. John chapter 10 and verse 16 gives us uh, another piece of insight into what the shepherding should have looked like. John chapter 10 and verse 16, we read, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. You see, as shepherds, we can't simply minister to the flock before us. But there are others that must be sought out. And that's what the good shepherd did. But these have not fed the flock. They've not cared for the flock. They've not shepherded the flock. And God says, woe to you shepherds of Israel. And then in verses 7 to 10, he pronounces his judgment upon them for their wickedness and for their lack of obedience. And he says there in verse 7, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And for all the beasts, and, and my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. We have God's pronouncement here at the beginning of verse 7 and that the shepherds are to hear the word of the Lord. And then in verse 8, we have the power of the enforcement. As I live, declares the Lord God. If God is alive, then surely his massive judgment is coming and they will receive the feeding of judgment. The purpose for this judgment's restated in verse 8. It's because the flock has become a prey. Even food for the predators of the false religions, those which are ripping and devouring and tearing God's chosen people from him. It's because they failed as shepherds. And our, our third point restated here, not shepherding. They did not search for the lost, but rather fed themselves. It's exactly what Paul tells the church in Ephesus in Acts 20, 29. He says, watch out for the flock of God among you. For after I have gone, savage wolves will come in. Where from? From outside? No. From among yourselves. You know, we have to understand how vital this is. How important it is that we provide this care. How important it is that we care for one another in a greater and more deep way in this church. Remember the, the warning against Belshazzar from Daniel 5? 
Nebuchadnezzar's grandson's there. You remember that scene? He has gone out to have a big party and he's pulled out the gold goblets from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar took captive. And they're drinking and they're partying out. Yeah, yeah, look at these goblets. No big deal. We're partying with this God's goblets. And then the handwriting on the wall that comes out. Mene, mene, tekel upharsum. And the inscription that came with that message was so clear. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persian. And then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck. And immediately afterwards, Belshazzar falls down dead. God is not kidding when he says that he will feed these with judgment. God repeats his pronouncement in verse 9 where he says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherd will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth and they will not be food for them. Behold, behold, I am against the shepherds that he will demand his sheep from them. Literally in the Hebrew, I will demand my flock from your hand. One of the Hebrew verbs back at the end of verse 6 was that word search, that they did not search for the flock. No one searched or seeked for them. It's the same Greek word used again here. He will, or Hebrew word rather. He will demand that his flock be sought. He will demand payment for the failings of those who are called to this task. And the payment will be great indeed. And he demands it of his shepherd's hands. Reminds us of Ezekiel's warning in Ezekiel 33, doesn't it? Where God came to Ezekiel and he said, this warning which I'm giving to you is that you would warn each person individually of the nation. If you warn them and they turn from their wickedness, then their blood will be on their own hands. But if you fail to warn them and they remain in their wickedness and die in it, then their blood will be on your hands. And here he is calling the shepherds that he will pull them out of the sheep, out from their hands. And God says that they will cease from feeding. Literally, not that he will, they will not be able to feed these sheep, but literally they will be physically removed as shepherds. They will no longer feed themselves, but the flock will be taken from their mouths. God's sheep shall no longer be food. They shall no longer devour the children of Israel. Again, this is not physical feeding. This is a metaphor for the financial and spiritual gain that the shepherds are ripping from the flocks. And God says no more. But what is the feeding of judgment? Well, we don't really see the penalty here, but we see it throughout Ezekiel's book. There are pieces of it. If we went back to Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 12, where Ezekiel is forced to bake his bread over dung, we we see in that text that he gives us an idea of what this judgment is going to look like. And he says there in verse 12, You shall eat it as a barley cake, having baked it in their sight over human dung. 
Then the Lord said, this, Thus will the sons of Israel eat their unclean bread among the nations where I will banish them. He goes on in chapter 5 and verse 9 and says, And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons among you, and sons will eat their fathers. For I will execute judgment on you and scatter all your remnant to every wind. When God tells people that he is going to bring the feeding of judgment It is of the most dramatic fashion. And we understand more the context of this woe. Beloved, this is what's coming for the shepherds of Israel. But what of the New Testament elder? Remember the text from Hebrews 10, 29? How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has insulted the spirit of grace. The judgment on the New Testament elder will be much more severe even than this. He has greater knowledge. The knowledge of the things angels long to look into. 1 Peter 1.12 tells us. If you want to know how severe a judgment an elder is subject to, consider these things. If you, and if you want to know whether a man is qualified as elder, ask him his thoughts about the consequences if he fails his job. At least internally, in his humbleness, he should shudder and turn pale. And his fear of the woe of God ought be apparent. And if he does not reflect those things, then maybe he isn't the man that God has chosen. And he doesn't understand the feeding of judgment. James 3.1 tells us, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. We go back to Hebrews chapter 10, and it tells us that we are to be obedient to our leaders because they keep watch over our souls and let them do this with joy and not sorrow why because they will give an account to who do i give an account to my wife if i don't do such a great job pastoring well i hope so but that's not what it's talking about here this is standing before god we will all stand before the bema seat and receive the judgment not punitive but reward for what we have done but the elders will stand at a different level for what they have done you need not wonder at what will happen if an elder remains in sin or even if a group are wicked god's judgment is sure it is the feeding of judgment judgment of such severity as to make the strongest recoil at even the thought And also we know that God will take care of his flock because after his judgment upon the false shepherd in Ezekiel 34, God steps in to take care of his flock. And we're about to launch out of the last piece of judgment into this glorious picture of God's care of his flock, the true shepherd. And it is brilliant to recognize. Next week we'll see this in Ezekiel 34 in verse 11 and forward. He is providing godly elders to take care 
of you. And the men who have been announced to meet this standard who are here serving are those whom God has called, those who understand the truth of Mark 10.45, the theme of that great book, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. And that we as the elders of this church must emulate that standard and show that picture to you at all times. That which we know is this theme. Let me reread that section as we close. Mark 10 and 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. That ought not be an elder. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for the many. Ask yourself if this isn't the qualification that each man serving as elder in this church meets. And continue to ask yourself that question as the Lord might provide others. And when you do, you'll understand what truly an elder is to look like. And you will also understand keenly how you can have full trust and assurance in those men. Because even if we do not see what goes on in their lives, God misses nothing. And when his judgment comes, it will be a feeding of judgment like never has anyone understood or seen. May God be merciful to grant the elders of this church and you as his beloved flock an understanding of how important this text is for us here in Christ Fellowship some 2,500 years after it was written, but every bit as applicable as if it was penned while we were having dinner. Praise God for his wonderful word.